Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. You're listening to a new Redefining Security podcast. Have you ever thought that we are selling cybersecurity insincerely, buying it indiscriminately, and deploying it ineffectively? Perhaps we are. So let's look at how we can organize a successful InfoSec program that integrates people, process, technology, and culture to drive growth and protect business value. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Asgardio by WSO2 is a developer-focused identity and access management solution. Offered as Identity as a Service, or IDAS, Asgardio by WSO2 creates seamless login experiences to your apps in minutes. EdgeScan offers continuous vulnerability intelligence as a service, accurately identifying vulnerabilities and exposures across the full stack. All threats are verified by cybersecurity experts, providing exploitable risk and remediation guidance, virtually false positive free. Learn more at edgescan.com. Here we are. You're very welcome to a new Redefining Cybersecurity podcast here on ITSP Magazine. This is Sean Martin, and uh, as you know, I'd like to explore the world of security and security operations and how we can come together to help each other operationalize security, uh, not just take take what's available in, in technology and, and run with it, but actually put some meaningful programs together that uh, address the needs and, and achieves the outcomes that we all want as a business. And today's topic is one that uh, is near and dear to my heart. I've done many moons ago, I've done the security testing of apps and, and gone in and, and white boxed and black boxed apps to see what they should and shouldn't do and help developers create a, a better experience for the user and for the business. And, so that's AppSec in the software development lifecycle, and I'm thrilled to have Andy Rappaport on with me today. Andy, thanks for thanks for joining and and suggesting this topic. It's uh it's one that I love. So we're we're gonna have a hard time keeping each other from uh, spilling <laughs> over into hours and hours of of uh, conversation here. Uh, pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So let's, uh, as we normally do, kick kick it off with uh, a bit about who Andy is. Maybe a snippet of your journey uh, leading up to your current role, and why why this topic is is important to you, and why you're so passionate about it. Oh, sure. So my current role is I'm a data security architect at a large IoT company, um, but along the way, I've been the security guy at data companies and the data guy at security companies, from little startups with nine people to massive companies. But all of my jobs have focused around data in some way. Um, I've always been a developer builder, even in security roles. Um, part of the reason that I became interested in securities code or testing security is that while I've been, when I'm wearing my security hat, I'm jealous of all the different tools that I've had when I'm wearing my developer hat. Um, 15 years ago or so, I was the architect for a large web access management product, SiteMinder, maybe the largest, I don't know, but Federation SSO Identity Delivery. And I was given a top conference talk on fine grain access control, something called ZACMO. 
Um, and I was complaining to the audience about how the development tools and process didn't exist for security. Uh, so uh, there had been a huge level up in software development practice about that time. So iterative development was just becoming a reasonable alternative to waterfall. Um, waterfall is where you would developers would build it and then throw it on the wall to a QA group to try to verify it. Things like versioning and release tracking, um, that DevOps or formal automated builds were just becoming available um, in testing. So where it used to be that testing was primarily uh, some poor QA group, that testing was becoming automated and starting to push into the responsibility of the developers so that unit tests, functional tests were now becoming part of um, what are the developer's responsibility. So instead of just writing code, they need to also build tests to make sure that it, it works. Um, so my question was, well, what can we, what can we learn? What can security people do to prove security controls, security policies correct? Um, and so I wanted everything that security development practice had become. So over the years since then, uh, learned, improved, done different things. Yeah, and I want to, I mean, you're bringing uh, a trip down memory lane here because uh, <laughs> one, one of the things I did was build build automation to, uh, this will date me, net, netware. <laughs> I was building awesome. network tools and automation to uh, to run through all the functions. Now that the challenge that I had was one, the function had to be built, so I knew what the inputs and outputs were, so that I could write the tests and then check. Of course, I had to wait for the build to come as well. Um, trying to remember if we ever got to a point where I, I could create something generic enough that that the developers could actually use before they they built something. I don't think we ever really, really got there in the network days. But I mean, the the world has changed dramatically, as you pointed out. I mean, we were also in waterfall at that time. Uh, no, no uh, DevOps uh, agile in the picture. Um, these early days that I'm talking about, and so it's CI/CD with containers and microservices and all these things. And and I mean, how how I guess my kind of kicking into gear how. How have you seen things transform over the years that perhaps have made it easier and maybe oh, sure. in other ways made it more challenging to, to integrate security into the SDLC? I think you nailed it. I think the uh, for me, the hardest part is creating the uh, live test targets that I don't want to have any type of <clears throat> simulated security response um, or mock I want to run an actual select call against an actual database. I want to run an actual update or drop table or with an API, run the right things. So the headache of creating the, the test targets becomes much easier with disposable containers or in a, an infrastructure as code in a cloud environment. I want to spin up a new database. I want to create a new set of objects in an S3 bucket. Uh, so one of the main advantages is that I can create a, a very accurate, very comprehensive set of things that I'm going to test against. Um, so I think that infrastructure of code, in, infrastructure as code has made 
the testing portion of security as code much easier. Yeah, and I think, and I'm just trying to think through that um, because I, I mentioned Netware. Obviously, I did did more than Netware over the years. I continued to date myself. OS two and Win thirty two and and uh, and on up the chain. But I guess my my thoughts as you described infrastructure as code is that there are many platforms <laughs> underneath, right? So there's this abstraction layer that, that can connect to one or more clouds using a variety of different uh, container technologies. Um, how how do we get our hands and our head around that these days? I think it's environment dependent, but like uh, like anything, you decompose your architecture. You think of what are the exposed interfaces. It might be a formal interface like a REST API or API gateway. It might be the backend queries to a database. Um, you may even want to look at um, management interfaces to tools based on how much time and energy you have. Um, but I like to look at what are the, the main access points to the thing that I'm supposed to be securing. Um, and then start from start from that and work work inside. Start with the main interfaces that you can define. What you know this can come from your threat model, or it can just can come from your architecture diagram or your uh, functional spec to start to figure out what to test first. And I know we're we're going to get into the the how we do some of this stuff. But let, let's talk about this, this role of the architect. And one of the things I wanted to discuss with you is um, the difference between different types of architects, security architect versus data security architect versus infrastructure security architect versus, I don't know, security operations architect. There may be a gazillion for all I know. Um, how, does, how do those roles get defined uh, how do they become part of the SDLC program for testing? And I don't know, any experiences to, to share with folks that, that say, here, here's how this stuff actually works, uh, different architects in the mix? Yeah, two thoughts. Um, one is for, a, for me, a, a data security architect. So in addition to access control, um, that I spend a lot of time on the compliance front. So working with um, privacy teams or even financial teams to think about the controls that they need. So things like least privilege, privacy, privacy by design um, are part of what goes into the control implementation. You know, so who, should be able to access different types of data within a database. Um, I'm making something up, but let's say there's a table that has some columns of a PII and you have a, a view that restricts the PII. So if that's the way that the product team wants to build it, so then me as the a data focused security architect, um, I know that I need to prove, I need to verify that the view 
is only for the people that have legitimate use, that have a, a valid business use case. So that's probably one of the compliance requirements, one of the things that you told users that you would follow when you collected their PII. Um, so data security is, in addition to the security part of it, you also spend a lot of time with the compliance people with you know, under what cases someone can access it as well. Where someone who on the network side, um, maybe more about scalability, you know, different zones, isolation zones, you know, the zero trust, you know, nightly nightmares. And so let's talk about some of the components. So you mentioned databases, uh, there's the infrastructure, which the database clearly is part of. Um, but then there's the, I don't know if you want to call it middleware, but the, the, the services that, again, used to build out an app that then has uh, an interface. And so as you're describing setting up these controls and, and understanding who should have access to what and, and setting up the views accordingly, I'm picturing everything down at the, the database layer, moving to the service layer, moving to the app layer, um, and perhaps even there's the the UX layer that or the UI layer that uh, is a different one, which there are different developers for each of those spots as well. So, in creating controls. I probably know the answer, but can you just rely on, all right, let, let's put the controls around the database and that's enough? Or do you say we also need the uh, the infrastructure controls in place or the networking controls in place or the how, how you need it all up, up and down that stack, I would imagine, right? I think there's two ways to, to answer that. First is that if you look at compensating controls, that you know um again, let's say we have a web front end so we want web security let's say that it's a partner website so we might need network security if we want to have a, an ip access list and restrict it to certain partners um, we want to make sure that injection attacks um, are caught and captured so compensating controls so there may be many groups many people that have built part of uh, what goes into your overall security. Um, I like to use the term the effective security, the net effect of all the different controls on your specific exposed resource, your interface, whatever that is. Um, although you can, you can, and I think it's a good idea to be able to automate and test each of the component parts, uh, middleware, backend. Um, I like empirical tests where um, if I have a web API, for example, I want to be making web, web API calls and test everything that I can test, the different identities, different parameters, um, different objects in the backend that I know that I should or should not be able to access. Uh, so test the effective security of all the range of controls. Um, within that kind of like um, zero trust does for 
defense and depth from network access. Once you can automate your security testing at different levels, I love the idea of putting tests at different levels. Um, so for example, in some of the tests I have, it's pure access control. Um, this user should be able to do this. This user should not be able to do this. Uh, let me try it. Um, but I also have tests that'll verify that different levels will handle injection attacks correctly. So once I have a hunk of code that can um, do like a controlled fuzz and prove that the, the query layer um, is not susceptible to injection, um, now what I can do, or the ideally the, the dev team can do, is let's reuse that same uh, fuzzing code on every place where data comes in from the outside. So we think of injection as coming from you know, uh, web uh, post data, but let's look at everything. Let's look at environment, user agent, anything that comes in a parameter string, um, anything. Once we can, once we have the code to implement it, it's easy enough for the developers to drop it in. Once we have the code to test it, it's easier for whoever's going to build those tests just to verify that the injection defense exists. So and kind of going back to what I was jealous about with software development is uh, reuse is a big deal in software development. No one has to write everything. It's, it's the same with testing and controls. Now, are, are you describing, and I may be getting this wrong, maybe I'm, I'm a little over, overzealous or anxious that, that it's possible. Are you saying that developers could use that code to make the the functions and that part of the the system testable or more easily testable yeah, using yeah. using paired paired code that's in the test environment or yeah, is it or is it code that's built into the build environment uh, not in the app code where is it sitting and how, how does it actually work? I guess that's really what I'm oh, So in this case, what um, we'll get into it, but because the establishing of the identity is, I, I like the security tests to be part of the SDLC, meaning they can run as dev and test um, with false tilt phasers on it, phasers on destructive testing. Um, so I like them as part of the SDLC so that you catch um, control definition problems earlier. Um, you, so I like security tests right along the other functional tests that a product team might, might run. Um, but you certainly could have this as an external piece that would test, say, at the prod level. Um, and analogous to uh, different types of dev testing, like a dev would have unit tests, functional tests, integration tests. They also might have scale or performance tests. They might have scale tests that bring it to a, a point of failure. So that would be something that would be done probably by some external tool. Um, you could do the same thing with security, you know, whether it's, um, I don't know, uh, you could just do it with security as well. Yeah. Now, in, in my experience, security, because we talked a little bit about 
quality assurance here as well, QA. And uh, my role initially, we when I'm looking back early on in my role, it was I was part of the QA engineering group, part of the larger QA group, and it wasn't a secure DevSecOps team across the organization. Uh, they, they ultimately got there, but um, so I was actually part of QA. And I'm wondering, in your experience, uh, either directly or talking with your peers, uh, where does security in the SDLC fit from a team structure perspective? Oh, that's I mean, a great e question. even leading up to to your role as a data security architect. Right? One of the, I guess, one of the things that I believe that if security people want to influence security in product development, product teams, product releases, the best thing you can do is make it easy for the busy product teams. So how do you make it easy? Um, one of the things that I'm a builder and developer, so um, I love to write the security code and do it for the, the product teams. So I know you guys are busy here. What if I coded it and here's a running code you can drop it in? You know, so for example, um, the access control use cases. Um, defining those, the use cases, defining the tests that do that. Um, if I just wrote a document that said, hey, you need to do this, you know, a, a, a document with a bunch of capital musts and should in it, it's probably not going to happen. Um, but if I can say, hey, here's some code that works. What if I built this for you? And what if you dropped it into your existing SDLC? So um, we're a Python shop, so PyUnit. Um, call this, it's going to run a bunch of PyUnit tests. Um, and then it's part of their SDLC. So even though I might, even though the security person might not be embedded with that team, which would be optimal, at the very least, I can provide some code that they would be willing to pick up, put it inside their repo. And now anytime they change a security policy in AWS CloudFormation, um, if it violates one of the previous security tests, then their tests fail. And they need to take the time to either update the, you know, correct the policy or correct the test. But, but to answer your question, my th strong recommendation is that the uh, security testing to the degree possible should be part of the product team's repo and the product team's SDLC and not something that the security team is responsible for running and catching. Yeah, it makes, makes a ton of sense to me. And um, another thing that I, I feel we struggled with, uh, especially when it's a, I'm going to build it and then toss it over the fence and you're going to, you're going to check it <laughs> is, is yeah. the, the number of tests running all the time. I mean, we, we'd have some, we'd have some tests that might take days to get through um, inter intermixing some automation with some manual tests, um, certainly scalability tests and, and reliability tests might, you, you can't, you can't bake three days into two hours necessarily. I don't know. Maybe there are ways to do that now, but I guess what I'm leading to is if the tests that you're creating are a behemoth and follow the waterfall <laughs> testing model 
and you try to jam that into an agile uh, SDLC, um, even if the tests work uh, and it's easy to integrate, uh, if it if it still delays or causes complexities in getting to the final outcome, we're in trouble, right? So I don't know if if you have seen that that uh, happen, have experience with that, or what, what are you what are you thinking on that front? I think kind of the opposite. That I think so. You mentioned creating the the test data that you can try to delete or update, or the test data with. Um, all the different permutations of permissions and identities. Um, I think if you can automate that, then what that allows is that the test team can run those in parallel, you know, especially if you have um, a cloud environment um, or the ability to run different containers. So now you have the ability to kind of set it and forget it. So even though it takes, um, let's say an hour, or so that would be long. Not, none of my uh, test data sets take that long. But let's say it takes you know an hour, and let's say it takes 15 or so minutes to run the tests, 40 minutes to run the test, an hour to run the test. Uh, the fact that you can automate it and that no human being needs to babysit or type a bunch of things or record results means that it's more likely to be run at the pre-deployment, at the end of a cycle. And even we talked about how iterative development Agile, iterative um, is how product teams work. It's really also how security teams work. You know, you get a call from someone and they say, hey, I need you to also include um, this permission or this role or this IP range. So someone makes a change. Um, how do you know that that didn't either break something where some piece of product functionality would no longer work and you shut somebody down? Or how do you know you didn't inadvertently open something up with some uh, side effect or some case that you didn't think of? You know, think about the, the busy uh, ops person that just got a you know screaming email or work ticket. Um, I need to allow users from some new geo, or I need to allow um, my admins from this contractor group to now be able to do these things. So what they're going to do is try to make the pain stop and make a quick change. If they can only do it from a console and then look over the work and hope it's right, um, they will not have any good way to know that they didn't introduce any regressions, negative or positive. So going back to your point, I think the, the ability to automate in a relatively short amount of time means that pre-deploy, whether it's in an old school waterfall or whether it's in an agile or whether it's in a, an operational ticket like thing that they will be more likely to run some level of security testing to make sure that it introduce negative or positive regressions. And Andy, in your experience, um, I'm just thinking, cause later, later on in my, in my uh, own life, uh, moved off a of network and into building, building a SIM, which had, uh, SQL-like databases and, and directory uh, services and tons of networking devices and and plugins and apps and data data sets and all kinds of things to deal with. And with a complex system like that, and this is, again, before containers and everything, but even still, a complex system like that, 
there's a ton of different developers with different expertise. Somebody's looking after the database, another one's looking after the, the Active Directory, another one's looking at the, the network and the communications. Somebody else is uh, trying to figure out the logic of all this stuff and, and the plugins and the ecosystem that's coming. My point is, a control is failing. Um, there can be a lot of conversation around well, where did it fail? How did it fail? Who's responsible for compensating for that failure? Was it a, does it need to move from this place to a different place so that we never arrive here with this failure? And I guess my, so my question to you is with, with uh, security built into the SDLC, how, how can we kind of route not just the identification of the failure, but the, the, the clarification and the context that the team can use to say, this is the best likely spot to, to address this thing that we uncovered. First of all, great question. Um, so how do you avoid all the finger pointing and miserable meetings? I think- Yeah, yeah. hiding behind the automation. <laughs> yeah, I think the first point of that, like anytime, you get a bug report from the field. What's the first thing? Is it reproducible? What are the steps for me to reproduce? Um, so if you have an ability to induce security failures, um, or even if you have the ability to prove a system to the best of your knowledge that it's, it's correct. Um, but let's say there is some failure. Um, if you can add a new test case and reproduce the failure. So now what that allows is, this is almost like what developers call test-driven development, where you define the, the test before you write the code. So you write the test, it fails, and then you keep writing the code until the, the test or tests succeed. Um, so using that same model here with security, if you have the ability to um, write a test that recreates the failure, again, let's say there's a new I don't know, you want to allow access from a partner in a new geo or something like that. And isn't that requirements documentation? <laughs> building you know, out the PRD just in, in great detail, or am I, am I missing something? Um, well, I think that the advantage of this testing, like any agile or iterative, is that you probably will get it right when you first deployment because you have all the energy and. Uh, focus and attention and time. Um, I think the, the thing that I liked about your question is how do you handle it when it's already deployed and you already have, you know, a significant workload and revenue generating or any, any of those things. The reason why I like the testing is let's say you have to move a control. Let's say you have to loosen a, I don't know, a network control and move it to the API or database or some other place. You need to change controls. Um, how do you know that you haven't exposed some bad regression part? Mm. How do you test it? Again, let's say the example you need to loosen a network control or loosen something at the API at the middleware level and now maybe handle it some other place. If you have a means to, to test, now you can experiment with the changes in the control sets even if it's at different places. I don't know that it helps you debug other than if you can repeatedly create the problem, 
then you can generate stuff and every tier's logs and people can hopefully figure it out. Um, but at the very least, as you start to experiment with the fixes, you know, you didn't break anything. Yeah, I can see a similar scenario because it's easy to get wrapped around the, the axle on, uh, geez, here comes another bug. Um, we, we made a change over here and, and or or we, we expose something that's not working, that, which breaks our controls. We have to fix it. Um, but there's also cases where we are now working with a new partner or plugging in a new service or, yeah. or, and, and those recreate, create new workflows and, and logic paths that, that uh, might change that stuff too. And I was laughing, you know, um, yeah. in physics, what second law thermodynamics where things go from order to unordered entropy. I think with mm-hmm. security things, only flow in one direction. They flow from least privilege to weakening. You know, there's more more opening of controls. There's more asterisks that show up in um, in policies. So I think the natural tendency is for security to become less strict as it enters into operations. So how do you help the security ops team or the people making one-off changes to know that they haven't haven't broken something. So let's get into, not that we haven't been talking about security as code, but um, I, I feel there's an opportunity to really dig in here on that point in that if you just had a bunch of, and I was kind of joking about it, just the PRD, right? Which maybe then have user, user stories and use cases yeah. that you test against. Those are likely documents with a set of tests that you run. Hopefully a lot of those are uh, automated. We're talking about writing some code to automate uh, APIs and and IO stuff here as well. But security as code is a little little perhaps even deeper than that, if if I'm not mistaken. It follows the same pattern, though. You nailed it with a PRD. So there's, um, you know, the three big parts that you have some definition of what correct means. PRD, functional spec, some other definition of what correct is. You know, then developers or whoever go builds a bunch of things. And then you have some mechanism to prove whether the things they built actually meets the requirements. Repeat and repeat until it, it looks good or some other changes is needed. I think with security as code, um, the process that I've settled into over the years is you start with uh, the architecture or the product definition or something like that. Um, you define what are the major interfaces or resources. You know, is there an API? Is there a database? What are those things? Um, you work with a team, and I'll tell you how I do it, to define um, the who should be able to access what in a high level. Um, then the the team, the product team, or the security team implements the controls. Then you run your your tests. Um, the for a while I've used a, an interview like approach with stakeholders and business owners. Um, the name I've I've settled on is access use cases. So kind of like agile use cases, uh, follow a simple syntax. They're conversational, and they help um, stakeholders high level define what the system should do. Um, for security, for especially access use cases, 
what you end up defining is something like role A should be able to read resource X, role B should be able to delete resource X. So high level things. Um, it's high level, that's the sweet spot. Um, it allows you to work with the business owners, the product stakeholders, say, is this how your system should behave? Yep. Then you can turn around and work with the technical people. You know, if it's you that implements the controls or somebody else and say, here's what this thing should do. And the, the thing that the security expert adds is the kind of think like an attacker, the professional paranoia that you add the, the compliment. Um, so while you're working with the stakeholders, if they say role A should be able to read some resource, you can ask, can they read all resources? They say, oh, no, no, they can only re read the resources from their group. Okay. Um, should they be able to delete? Oh, they can't delete. Um, so the the security professional, while you're in like the uh, think like an attacker mode, you always ask, whenever there's an assertion, you ask about everything else. So if role A can do something, you ask, can everybody do that? Um, what happens, what I've found is that it's, it's pretty beautiful that the the stakeholders you're working with, that they quickly understand the cadence and the kind of questions that you'll ask. Um, and they will start to either ask the questions of themselves or start to give more uh, direct descriptions of these access use cases. So what you end up with is least privilege. Who can do what? Um, again, let's say, I don't know, multi-tenant. Let's say we have two tenants. Um, so they'll say um, a tenant, can read their files. Can they read off any tennis files? Nope. Can they delete? Oh no, only power users can delete. So you as the, the person leading this interview. So if power users can delete, that means that regular users can't delete. And that's a test you add. Um, what I've found out is you can generate these access use cases analogous to agile use cases pretty quickly at a high level, it's normally fun and fast. And you get a pretty comprehensive comprehensive definition of what the, at least the access portion of the system, how it should behave. It's certainly well-defined enough that you can define your security controls, your access controls based on it. And it's uh, nearly high, nearly comprehensive enough that you can build all of your access control security tests with it. So requirements, access use cases, kind of like agile use cases. Um, it reinforces least privilege. Um, and it's normally pretty fun, easy process that stakeholders don't hate. <laughs> and so to keep, me, keep me going along this path. So requirements, access use cases, is it control definition comes next with then security as code to validate? There might be a little bit of refinement. So for example, like let's say um, um, if it's partners with some multi-tenant thing, then maybe you might want to, uh, the security professional um, may want to start to um, extend those with some IP range or what's allowed or something like that. Um, they may say that, um, uh, let's say, based on the sensitivity of the data, that 
sensitive data can only be accessed from within a specific secure enclave or a certain network segment or machine or something like that. So you take the higher level things, a security professional can augment it with some of the things that um, the business owners might not think about. So maybe you need to work with their architect or other security architects, but you end up with those uh, access use cases and a definition of what to test. Um, now, whoever's going to build the controls, whether it's um, infrastructure as code and everything is in a single AWS CloudFormation file, or maybe it's uh, the network team needs to build segments or VPCs, um, you can make sure that those requirements are um, consumed by who's ever building the controls. So they do their best effort to build those controls. Now, the third part of it is testing the security, those security controls. And again, I like effective security. So um, if I'm running on AWS and there is um, a security requirement for access to a S3 bucket or an API, um, I want to make an actual AWS Python call to fetch that bucket or the object in that bucket. Um, if the requirement is that um, some user level should not be able to delete in dev level, I'm going to try to delete. So I think it's important that your test framework allows dangerous tests, destructive tests in a dev environment, because you're never going to test it in prod. Never. <laughs> you're never going to try it. Um, so if someone says that and the user can read like, I don't know, from a database, do a select, but they can't do an update or a drop. I want to test it. I want to find a way to test it as part of my dev level tests. Um, I want to write the tests for what users can and can't do things. Um, in your test framework, it works out that um, once you have a pattern for running a query, or a S3 call or a call against one of the other databases or APIs in your system, it's easy to build out tests. Some user in AWS that's represented by a session um, can or can't, what's the expected result? Some action, some verb, you know, get, update, delete, drop, you know, select whatever. Um, some parameters. Um, and then what is the expected result? You have a hunk of code that actually makes the call and you can either delete it or not. You can either run the select or not. Um, you compare what actually happened against what you were expecting. Um, if you were expecting it to succeed and it did, your test worked. If you were expecting it to fail, if you're expecting the control to get in the way and it allowed it, then your control failed and your test failed. Um, I want to, I want to talk to you about that because I'm sure just like you, uh, I'm, I'm perfect. I've never written a bad line of code in my life. Uh, all my tests worked perfectly. Um, I'm joking, of course. Uh, mm -hmm. And what, what I'm really getting at here is in a manual human driven environment, you have human error, of course, but chances are you probably have a few, few people doing 
the same or similar tasks, so they're going to uncover the human error. So some of those anomalies are going to surface eventually. Um, when we start talking about automation and tooling and security as code, where it's all built in and abstracted, uh, how, how do we test the test to ensure that, that we're not just scaling human error to uh, an unacceptable level? And I don't know, maybe now's a good time to, to maybe touch on some other post-build controls we still need. I don't know how DAST, SAST, IAS stuff still fits into this to maybe help shore up some of these things. Um, I think you bring up a, a good point. Um, part of it is separation of duties so that the, the person who's thinking of the negative tests um, will be thinking like someone who wants to break things, think like an attacker. Um, I mentioned fuzzing. So whether you use an actual fuzzer or, I don't know, for example, when I do injection testing, um, I'll try a, a range of different negative cases, you know, single, double bite, all the things I can think of. And I write that as a big um, reusable set of uh, things that I'm going to pass down. So I can think of a big comprehensive mechanism. Um, when I think of, uh, we have a, um, I've built attribute based access control where the tags on a system um, are consumed by controls, including different levels of access or where it can be accessed from. So pretty heavy attribute based access control so that the, the cases are pretty complex. So one of the things that, that I can do is um, I can make sure that my, or the system uh, will only respond if the metadata is correct, for example. Um, if it's anything other than correct, white space, malformed, uh, different case, um, missing, um, then I need to make sure that my control fails closed. Um, I can think through the range of what the negative conditions are much better when I'm in the mindset of think like an attacker, think like a tester, and I'm trying to break things and think of all the different permutations of bad um, than what I'm trying to figure, when I'm actually trying to code the control and just get it to work so I can go to dinner. Um, I use Python and um, Py, Py unit tests, they make it very easy to parameterize um, a single test or test set and make it easy for me to define a full range of um, negative conditions, for example, that I know should all fail. So they make it easy for me to build the edge cases for controls. Um, maybe not perfect, it's still, I'm going back to your question about it, it's still um, all the the negative or warped things or edge conditions that I can think of. But certainly when I'm in the mindset of breaking or defeating it, I know that I'm much more creative and malicious in what I test. Yeah, I love it. And, and some engineers might uh, stretch themselves to, to think like an attacker. I'm thinking about organizations that may not have the luxury of building out a 
uh, DevSecOps team, they're they're relying on their uh, dev team to uh, to pick up some of this uh, themselves. And I want to kind of close with a similar thought, uh, but with the architect role in mind. Because one of the things I like to do on the show is kind of figure out, and we've done a lot of it already here, is how do you how do you move the outcome that you want left to the design, right? You shift the left, the outcomes that you want. <laughs> so in other words, don't build something and toss it over the fence and see where it breaks. Actually design it from the beginning. This is why I love this conversation. Design it from the beginning to achieve the outcomes you want and, and prevent the non-outcomes that you don't want. Yeah. And so... So we talked about thinking like an attacker, um, kind of putting engineers out of their comfort zone. What about thinking like an architect? For Again, for organizations that may not have the luxury of an architect on the team, uh, we're relying on, on devs to, uh, to function as, as architects as well. Maybe some thoughts and, and tips for them. Yeah, I mean, the, again, the main thing, if you want people to, if you want the product teams to use it, Make it easy for them to use it. So design for reuse, design for maintenance, design for them to be able to can configure it. So just like any piece, any software component, any software tool that you were building, you want to make it so that other people can use it, usability. Um, I think that's the, the main thing. Um, maybe even invite teams that if they want to extend it, let's say there's a set of tests or a resource that you don't have yet, um, maybe that there's someone on the team that um, would be interested or has a little bit of time, so you help them. You you know team up with everything they need. You know a feature branch. Here are your tests. Here's what you do. Um, just code it in. Um, Is that like a, then, a, a, a open source shared services <laughs> library? Is that kind of what you're thinking there? Yeah, sure. Um, I've had great luck with, um, I'm an architect, I'm a builder. When a product team is too busy to do something the way that I think is right, um, offering it to build it. Like, hey, I got a little bit of time, I can code it. Um, they see it as a, as a win because they get something a little bit better. Um, I see it as a win-win because I get to code, fun. Um, but more importantly, what I think is the right way is now picked up by by that team. Um, and hopefully use it as an example as well. I do have a couple, I have three things I, um, I want to challenge people with. We talked a lot about uh, security testing for access control. You know, mm -hmm. So the actual, can they do something? Um, couple of three things that um, I think should, can and should be integrated as part of the SDLC. So normal definition of done, um, one is um, scan for secrets and code. So we just read about something this week where a company had uh, admin level API, the access AWS access credentials in their source code that they pushed out into PyPy. Um, not good. Scan for secrets, um, fail the build. If anything's there, force them to um, run up an exception, kind of like you do with uh, CFN lint, you know, CloudFormation lint. Um, if you can incorporate static security tests, 
maybe as part of your functional or integration tests, maybe not unit tests, but something further down, incorporate that. Um, or something else that I've prototyped, but I've never tried on a production piece. So in software development, there's something called behavior-driven development where uh, you define these side effects. So if there's a function that uh, the create user function, at the end of it, there should be a new record in the data in the user table. Um, a lot of security, especially zero trust, is about monitoring. So how do you know, how do you test your SecOps alerts and triggers? How do you know that they're functioning correctly? Um, something that I've prototyped, but can never put in production is, I have a set of tests that will do a negative security event, um, open something to to public, um, an access violation, DLP, um, something like that, some negative thing. That if in your environment, it should create a log entry or a security event, um, if it is a high priority thing, should it result in um, some other higher alert, Slack or page or duty or whatever, whatever you have. Um, but the key is that your detective controls are part of your uh, security controls. How do you test those? So at the very least, I love the idea of an automated way to trigger a full suite of um, well-identified negative security conditions and see if they manifest themselves in the right entries and triggers and alerts. Ooh, I love this. I, I feel we could have a whole conversation on just that. <laughs> <laughs> setting up, setting up SecOps and, and uh, wrapping in, uh, wrapping in app security and in, into that uh, in, in the run, in the, in the run environment, for the prod environment. Ah, I'm, I'm picturing tabletop exercise, all kinds of fun stuff there. Yeah. Um, well, maybe, maybe we have another chat on that, Andy. Um, <laughs> be, be happy to do that. So flip, flip over to the, uh, to the runtime side. Um, I mean, this is cool. As we knew uh, heading into this, I, I think we could probably keep going for ages and, uh, and know more about each other than, than either of us want to know about ourselves perhaps <laughs> but uh re really great stuff here and hopefully uh, the listeners picked up a few things that as we say here on itsp magazine if we get you to think uh we've we've done our job you certainly made me think andy and uh raised a lot of questions and gave me hope that there's a path to uh better ops and better sec in uh in dev so uh thanks for, thanks for joining me here on redefining security and thanks again for the invitation. My pleasure. And for those listening, uh, we'll, we'll put links in the show notes to, uh, to uh, Andy's profiles uh, online if he, if he chooses to share that with us. And uh, perhaps, Andy, if you have any links to share articles you've read or written or other works of material you think would be helpful uh, okay. in this context, uh, we'll, we'll put those in the show notes for folks as well. And uh, thanks again, everybody, for helping us to redefine cybersecurity here on ITS Magazine.
EdgeScan offers continuous vulnerability intelligence as a service, accurately identifying vulnerabilities and exposures across the full stack. All threats are verified by cybersecurity experts, providing exploitable risk and remediation guidance, virtually false positive free. Learn more at edgescan.com. Asgardia by WSO2 is a developer-focused identity and access management solution. Offered as Identity as a Service, or IDAS, Asgardio by WSO2 creates seamless login experiences to your apps in minutes. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Redefining Security Podcast. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSPMagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.